Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, November 11th, 2022. Happy Veterans Day, and this is our 300th episode. So a nice milestone for the Proceedings Podcast, and thanks to our listeners who helped us grow it from a, a few, maybe dozen listeners, uh, the first couple episodes that Ward and I did back in 2017 to now as many as uh, 5,000 listeners uh, and, and sometimes even more than that. So uh, great to have you on board. Um, I always think on Veterans Day, I'm always reminded of, of old shipmates and classmates of mine and my grandfather, maternal grandfather who served in the Navy as a supply corps officer, World War II. I remember his uh, stories from when I was a young boy. So thanks to all who served and are serving in our armed forces. Today's episode is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members, access to over 125,000 providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Okay. So last Friday's episode was an overview of the November Marine Corps issue of proceedings. Happy birthday yesterday to the Marines. Always uh, great to, to celebrate another Marine Corps birthday. 247 years and going strong. Hurrah, Marines. Uh, the November issue includes the three winning essays of our annual Marine Corps essay contest. And my guest today is the third prize winner, Navy Lieutenant Julie Rowland. She's a Naval aviator and MH-60 uh, helicopter pilot, and she joins us from San Diego, California. Lieutenant Roland, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. So congratulations on third prize. I'll remind our listeners that we received 97 essays in the contest this year, a record number. Uh, the top 10, uh, so the, my staff and I, we, we winnow them down usually to about the top 10, and then we send them off to uh, members of our uh, editorial board and our board of directors, uh, a couple of our Navy and Coast Guard editorial board members helped judge this one as well. And, um, and you know, the, the top 10 are judged by them in the blind. And then we open the envelope and we see who the winners are. Uh, so, Lieutenant Roland, your article is titled Reimagine Recruiting to Prevent Sexual Assault. It's bold, it's well-written, and it's meticulously researched. Uh, and your article starts by saying the Marine Corps can address a root cause of sexual assault with a new strategy, recruit better Marines. Can you give us an overview of, the, of your argument? Sure. Well, sexual assault is a major problem nationwide uh, and in the military, but it is the biggest in the Marine Corps. And this is an issue that's been existing for decades and we just don't seem to be making much progress. So the point is how can we make some progress faster than we have? Uh, the idea is a new strategy because we've been, I think, trying the same strategies over and over again and clearly aren't seeing the results we want to see. So this is somewhat a radical idea, but I'm basically suggesting that's what we need because the old, the old strategies aren't working. So the main thought here is that when we talk about prevention, we're doing prevention techniques for sexual assault about where, where we train active Marines, but this may be too late that in public health terms, we can be doing prevention further upstream and maybe be trying to attract Marines that are less likely to commit sexual assault, but even more than that, that could perpetuate a culture that is 
enabling it to occur uh, and basically using the recruitment process to keep out those more likely to condone it before it becomes a part of the culture. Uh, and so looking at prevention versus treatment and just thinking, is there something that we could do in recruitment that could have a bigger effect and a faster effect on solving this problem? Uh, so some might ask, uh, why is a Navy officer writing about sexual assault in the Marine Corps? And I, I had that thought myself when we finished the blind judging and we opened the envelope and I saw who the winners were. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. This is you know, a Navy officer writing about this. Uh, but I also quickly realized uh, this might be a topic that no Marines could touch, right? So what, what motivated you to write on this topic specifically? Well, in general, I do think sometimes an outside perspective is helpful, but I just like to challenge myself to see if I can articulate my ideas into persuasive writing. And that's what's brought me to the Naval Institute essay contest in the first place. And so when I saw this contest, I almost ignored it myself because it was a Marine Corps prompt. But the prompt is about what the Marine Corps can do to become stronger and more capable. And the essay contest offered some suggestions, but said, talk about the toughest issues. And I had a moment where I thought to myself that given how big of an issue sexual assault is, especially in the Marine Corps, it I think almost any conversation about how to make the Marine Corps stronger and more capable has to be about this issue. Uh, I think there's hardly any issue that has been so pervasive for so long in the Marine Corps. And so in some ways I considered perhaps the Naval Institute and the Marine Corps, they missed an opportunity by not holding a, con a contest that's specifically asking for, can we get 97 submissions of what we can do about sexual assault? And maybe that still can happen, but it just seems so obviously detrimental to everything that the Marine Corps is trying to accomplish. It affects recruitment and retention. It reduces unit cohesion. It distracts from the mission that it just, it needs to be the center of any discussion about how to be more capable. And I saw that it wasn't reserved for just Marines to write about. So I thought I might as well try to make my case. Well, good on you for doing that. Uh, I can say as the father of three young women, uh, this fact, which is in your article, uh, was a gut punch. You wrote one in six civilian women in, you know, in the United States experience sexual assault in their lifetimes, one in six. And in the military, assault is almost twice as frequent and women Marines are almost three times as likely to be assaulted as women in the Air Force. So uh, a big problem in our country, as you pointed out, so one in six women in, in America will be impacted, will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. That's deplorable. Uh, and then in the, in the military writ large, it's twice as frequent. Uh, and then in the Marine Corps, as you said, of the four or five services, it, it, it's more than that. It's the highest number. So um, so where does your data come from? Who tracks those statistics? And, and I, I will point out to our readers and our listeners that, you know, your article is footnoted to death. I mean, there's an, an incredible amount of data, but just for our listeners who maybe haven't read it yet, where did you get a lot of that uh, data to substantiate those, you know, those points? So first, the one in six civilian women, that comes from the Department of Justice and the CDC. They conducted a report on the prevalence, incidents, and consequences of violence against women. And that found that 17.7 million American women had been victims of attempted or completed rape. And uh, since then, actually, the U.S. population has increased substantially. So it's probable that 
the number of victims has as well. But that's where I found the one in six. Uh, and then you can confirm that statistic through the RAINN or the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. And I've used them for a lot of statistics for just overall civilian world in terms of this issue. And then the New York Times published an article last year and that documented the significantly higher percentage of service women who were reporting sexual assault in the military. And uh, they reported that more than half of service women uh, report experiencing harassment. So the majority of women serving the military experience sexual harassment. And then, but the, the best statistics on sexual assault in the military, I think, are put out by the DOD uh, themselves. They conduct an annual report on sexual assault, and I read all of those reports. Um, they're easy to access online, and they come with appendices that have the statistics broken out. And since submitting my essay to the contest, actually, they released their 2021 report, so that wasn't available when I wrote it. But I checked that prior to this. Um, and in 2021, they found that 13.4% of women in the Marine Corps experienced unwanted sexual contact. And that's compared to 5.5% of the Air Force. So I think I said that it was three times as likely in the Marine Corps. So there might be a small improvement of the relativity compared to the Air Force. It's pretty small marginal change and maybe isn't quite enough to deserve a pat on the back just yet. But what you see from the 2021 report that the DOD publishes, that's that the Marine Corps is seeing 3% more cases of unwanted sexual conduct than the Navy, 5% more than the Army, and 8% more than the Air Force. So it's clearly still a problem in all of the branches and across the country. But this year's numbers are asking the same question that my essay is asking, which is why is the Marine Corps struggling the most to address this issue? Yeah, and uh, I, I'd point to the article, uh, it's a couple, in, in the print magazine, it's a couple uh, before yours, it's by General Berger, and he's talking about recruitment and retention problems in the force, right? And I, I think your, uh, your article certainly addresses uh, some of the retention issues, uh, some of the morale issues, some of the, I mean, you know, I can't imagine that a woman who um, is, is uh, dealing with unwanted sexual advances or assault would, would stick around in any of the military services, right? And then if that perception is outside the services, why would somebody want to come in, right? If they're more likely to be the victim inside the military than, than in civilian population, why, why serve, right? I, so I think that it, it's, it, this is an incredibly relevant issue. And it's also uh, the timing of it with General Berger's article on recruiting and retention headwinds uh, is uh, very synergistic, I, I guess I would put it that way. Um, uh, so your, I want to say this, your, your article does not mince words about a culture of misogyny and sexual assault in the Marine Corps. Uh, there have been some online comments on the article that disagree, and it, it's always okay to disagree respectfully, uh, and, and there have been some good ones. Um, and, and several of them have pointed out that Marine Corps policy and training and official statements condemn, they do not condone, but condemn sexual assault. You know, and the, the, the former Commandant, General uh, Neller, the current commandant have certainly, you know, talked about this problem in no uncertain terms. So you're you're pointing towards, I, I think, you're pointing towards a more unofficial, hidden culture, vice an official one. Correct? Yes. So the top levels of leadership 
are certainly not condoning sexual assault. I mean, no one can possibly look at these facts and say that they're finding it encouraging. And I think the, the line will always be zero tolerance and a commitment to putting an end to this. But the point is that th that high level messaging isn't actually resulting in a decrease in assault. Over the last 40 years, the Marine Corps policy, the official statements, this training, it hasn't managed to change the numbers of assault. And yet what we do continue to see are these new scandals, which illuminate an ongoing, misogy ongoing misogyny in the culture and in new and horrific ways. Um, the I talk about the Marine Corps United Facebook group and uh, that that's the source of a more recent scandal in 2017, which was this secret online Facebook group with as many as 30,000 Marines in membership, including veterans. And the members were posting explicit photographs, thousands of naked private photos of Marine Corps women, along with offensive incendiary comments for the purpose of just degrading and humiliating these female Marine colleagues. And so the group is shut down, but even once that happens, the members rebranded, they create new pages, they promise to weed out anyone who's looking to whistleblow the group's behavior, and the groups reveal that the members even are taunting the federal and military investigators who shut them down. And so this is just incredibly sinister, but it's not out in the open, right? It lurks in the shadows of this culture. And so I don't mean to suggest with my paper that this is who the Marines are at their core. This is not the Marine Corps that I know, the, the Marines that I have had, I've been proud to serve alongside. They are not who's in this group. But meanwhile, there are 30,000 people in this instance who were both proudly identifying as Marines and didn't seem to be struggling to reconcile that piece of their identity and the fact that they're brazenly contributing to rape culture. So What's unfortunate is that no matter what leadership is saying about assault, no matter what the official policies are, this culture is continuing and it enables a culture of sexual assault. It allows it to survive despite the best efforts from these earnest Marines who are serving and, and doing us proud, despite what they want for the core. Uh, this is managing to exist anyway. So it's, yeah, the point is to uncover what is, what is lurking beneath the surface. So the total U.S. Marine Corps is about 170,000, 175,000 active duty uh, members, right? Uh, the Marines United Facebook group, you said was about 30,000. What was the percentage of them that were, that were active duty, that were current Marines? Do you, do you know that? I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think regardless of who's active or not, the point is there's, I mean, the Marine Corps Brotherhood, it exists long after you're still actively serving. So the fact that it, it shows a culture that exists while you're in and afterwards. Uh, and I think that veterans are a part of that is almost more troubling. It, it shows that this is a historic cultural trend. Yeah, I, d I don't remember the number myself. That's why I asked the question. But I do remember when when the scandal, the story broke. I remember General Neller's um, his messages to the force were very uh, sobering and heartfelt. And, and it, the, the problem, it, it could not be dismissed as, oh, this is just former Marines, right? They were, they were finding a significant number of current people in the force that were part of that, that were active participants in that 
uh, Facebook group. Uh, so it was it, it was a huge embarrassment, I know, for uh, for the commandant and, and other seniors uh, in the Marine Corps. So let's move on to how would you solve the problem? So you, you, you talk about recruiting um, as, as a way to get after this, recruiting different people, recruiting better people, recruiting people who are less likely to, uh, to be sexual uh, assaulters. Uh, so talk about that for a bit. So the reason that I focused in on that is not because that's the only thing that should be done or the thing that will fix it, but just that we're not doing it and it might bring about results faster. So leadership does need to continue to beat the drum that this is unacceptable. Uh, and there's a lot of considerations given to um, changing the justice system and things like that. But, uh, and also I think, um, just based on when women have been integrated into the military, we, we have fewer women in top leadership roles as we continue to bring more women into the Marine Corps and retain them and promote them. Eventually we'll have more women at the top making decisions on these matters. And that can sometimes be enough to help uh, find these blind spots, but shifts like this take a long time. So I'm looking at recruitment because I think this can have faster impact. Um, so one thought is if the Marine Corps shifted just an ad strategy in terms of uh, their recruitment advertising, it could be drawing in a different kind of Marine by next year. And if recruiters received new training for the kinds of conversations that they should be having with prospective Marines on issues like consent and bystander intervention, then the new crop of Marines headed to boot camp will already have sexual assault prevention on the mind, and that will be an instantaneous result. And then if drill sergeants receive training for how to squash out any glimpse of misogyny they see, if they hear rhetoric at, at any point, then maybe the Marines hitting the force are going to be even more indoctrinated to not tolerate any of that themselves, the kind of toxic culture that creates this breeding ground for assault. So these are all pitches for prevention techniques, and it's just moving the prevention further upstream than things like just sexual assault prevention training that happens once the... Marines are already active Marines. We've basically seen studies that show that there are folks who might already have a propensity for violence or who have a bias against women, that for those people, the trainings aren't even helpful and they can even be harmful and activate those violent tendencies. And so basically, instead of trying to focus efforts at helping these Marines unlearn this, that instead uh, just start with a better culture where they're They've come in learning all of the right lessons already, but it's a holistic problem. It requires a holistic solution. This is just one thing that we can do that might have uh, faster results. Um, but, you know, we still, when the sexual assault cases come up, the abusers need to see justice or the victims are going to stop reporting. Victims need to be properly protected and cared for and not fear retaliation or they'll stop reporting. So no one thing's going to fix this, but the point is basically to when we bring in new strategies, that is combating an issue, which is that we seem to sometimes just throw our hands in the air and decide we've tried everything. Nothing seems to be working and it's you know frustrating. And what do we do? But that that's the wrong attitude. What can we do that we haven't done before? So this is purposefully just saying, you know, when you look at all the DOD reports and their recommendations, this isn't being recommended. So part of my suggestion is 
let's try things that we have literally never tried before. Um, and then just more specifically in terms of like, what could these ads look like or what are these conversations between a recruiter and a prospective Marine? It, it's to not dance around it, but say there's a, an advertisement that shows a Marine or a, a, a high schooler who uh, hears his friends making some kind of degrading comment towards women that high schooler stands up for, you know, stands up to them and says that they shouldn't, you know, that what they said was offensive, something like that, you know, and then a recruiter finds that high schooler and says, Hey, that was really brave of you. You might belong in the Marine Corps. I think at that point, there might be people who watch that ad and think that the Marine Corps has gone soft and that that's not the toughness that they used to associate with the Marines. And I would say that the people who would eye roll at an ad like that are the kinds of people that the Marine Corps doesn't actually need more of and that the Marine Corps will never be soft. The Marine Corps is the most elite warfighting organization in the world that they can make their advertisements uh, attempt to draw in a different kind of Marine who is brave in this kind of way and maybe lose those that would eye roll at this kind of advocacy and can and be stronger for it so i, I want to go back for a second you you said a, a minute or two ago that there uh, can can actually be reverse effects or negative effects of some of the training that some of the the training that people can get uh on sexual assault prevention can actually have um uh, a, they can they can experience a backlash. I think that's how you put it. But uh, so if somebody is inclined to be a, um, a sexual predator, that if they if they're if they're um, exposed to training on how to not to act that way, that it may actually uh, tr be more of a trigger of bad behavior. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So I did just find that in my studies and found it rather alarming but yes if you come in you already have a propensity towards violence or you have this bias already against women these kinds of training can be frustrating you could i mean some of us who just sat through any training we can be frustrated that we're sitting there in training but it can it can be activating in those ways but also um a lot of these studies have showed that even that just across the board um one of the major takeaways is the idea that men become fearful that women will accuse them of assault and that they'll get in trouble for assault when that when they didn't commit it. And uh, an adverse effect of that is that a lot of men in these units to make sure that they don't commit assault accidentally, say they will avoid women in socially or at work. And though on the one hand, I guess they're playing it very safe to make sure that they're not going to be found guilty of, a, of an assault that they didn't mean to commit, what it's really doing is it's causing them to be overly cautious in a way that they shouldn't have to be, but it isolates the women further in the unit. So it has that adverse reaction as well. So some of this could be a problem of just what the training looks like. Maybe the training can be restructured so that it there isn't a communication or a, a misunderstanding of what the training is really trying to get at, but it also is falling on deaf ears with some of its audience. That, that point reminds me of, uh, there, was a, there was a panel discussion at the Naval Submarine League Symposium last week, week and a half ago. And the, the, the panel discussion was about women in the submarine force. And they had 
they had a captain, uh, a male captain, who was the first commanding officer of the Florida when, when that submarine had women integrate. They had a, uh, his, uh, now the forced master chief, but at that time was the, uh, the chief of the boat at the same time, a man. And then they had a, uh, uh, a woman independent duty corpsman, a senior chief who was, I think, a, probably a first class petty officer when she was, uh, went to her first submarine. They had a lieutenant commander who was in the first class of women from the Naval Academy who could be submarine officers. Uh, and the, the, the woman from the, the lieutenant commander made a comment about how people treated her on that submarine uh, when she was the first woman, first woman officer to be assigned to that submarine. And she said she got the, what you just described, right, was that the, the men, the male crew members were told, you know, in no uncertain terms, you are not to fill in the blank in terms of, you know, bad behavior. So they were so afraid of interacting with the women because they didn't want to have interactions that would be construed as being, you know, saying the wrong thing or acting the wrong way. And so they just sort of avoided them. And the, the, the lieutenant commander said it took a while uh, to break the ice. It took a while. And she said uh, she credited her chief petty officer, her division chief, who said, ma'am, I don't care. I, male, female, I, I don't care. My job is to make sure that you uh, are an effective uh, you know, superb division officer, right? That you are a good, uh, you know, submarine officer. And my job is to train you to be that. And that when, when the, um, the, the junior enlisted folks in the division saw the way that the chief was treating her and their interactions, they warmed up, right? And so that, that cultural piece was incredibly important, but the leadership piece was also very important, you know, and she, she just, um, uh, was effusive towards the in praising that chief petty officer for his leadership style in something that was a, a new, tough, uh, nobody had ever been there situation on, on a submarine, right? Uh, just your, your points there remind me of that. It was a, it was a, just a terrific, um, uh, it was a terrific panel. Um, uh, and I was impressed by that. You know, it's, it's always about leadership, quite frankly. It's almost always about leadership when you've got a, a hard problem to solve. Um, you, your article mentions some tactics that are working on college campuses. So over the years, you know, uh, sexual assault on college campuses has been a, a notorious uh, real you know, problem, particularly when there's alcohol involved, right? You know, you, oh my God, it, and nothing good happens after midnight and when people are drunk. But uh, describe some of those tactics that are working on college campuses and how, might, how they might be applied, you know, in a military or Marine Corps or, or, or broader military sense. Sure. So I found this journal uh, that was published in 2018, which had investigated the impact of basically uh, receiving varied prevention messages throughout adolescence and into early adulthood to determine whether it influenced college students' awareness of sexual violence and their willingness to intervene as a helpful bystander. So it, it basically revealed that the greater exposure to prevention messages prior to coming to college, then the greater... Uh, bystander interventions and behavior. Uh, so in other words, like college campuses can wait till their students arrive for freshman orientation and perhaps in that environment or over the course of their freshman year that they'll sit in similar GMT type trainings that the military does and they'll see what the sexual assault policies are on campus and the resources available and whatever. Or 
they can try to do outreach to those students ahead of time. It can be in the recruiting to the college, like when they come for admissions visits and uh, or if they're just sending out information or what's just easily accessible on their website, that all of, all of the ways in which they are engaging with future college students, that they can be having that conversation already. And it's the difference between taking an 18-year-old who has 18 years of, you know, their formative 18 years where they haven't been thinking about what does sexual assault prevention look like on a college campus and just reaching them sooner, reaching them while they're still developing, reaching them in high school and uh, setting a tone before they arrive on campus. So the studies are quite promising on college campuses. And I think there's a pretty obvious overlap between demographics of who's going to college and who's joining the military and, uh, and the kinds of, you know, I, I think a frat party is not so different than the environment of a port call. So, you know, there's a lot of ways in which I think um, the military could borrow from college campuses and vice versa. Uh, there's a lot that colleges take from the military. But uh, b- the idea basically is the sooner the outreach, the better the prevention. And so that, again, comes back to it could come in the form of uh, changing our advertising, changing the way recruiters talk to potential recruits, and then uh, addressing it in boot camp so that long before they're ever sitting in their command sexual assault prevention training, they're already, they've become well-versed in this kind of terminology, policy, attitude, everything. That's a good point. Uh, so last year, Congress changed the rules uh, so that military commanders no longer have the authority to prosecute sexual assault. Uh, And instead now uh, independent military prosecutors make those decisions Um, or or that's the the law. Do you know, has that been fully implemented yet? And and how is that working? I don't know that it's been fully implemented yet. I think as of July, 2021, uh, SecDef Austin directed that the department work with Congress to make those changes to the UCMJ. And the idea was to shift responsibility from military commanders for prosecuting sexual assaults and I think other related crimes. Uh, So that requires congressional approval. But uh, NJP, non-judicial punishments, that's within the purview of military services. And so the secretary also directed all the services to standardize across the force how those NJPs work um, and to establish specifically a separation process for service members uh, where there were substantiated claims of sexual harassment. I think we're going to learn how effective it is. Um, it, so probably, you know, maybe the, by the 2022 DOD report, we'll see. Um, my gut is that it's not a bad idea at all. Uh, outside of the military, it's, it's juries that make calls on these kinds of questions. So for most sexual assault cases to filter through a single person and a commanding officer who's not a judge, who's not gone to law school, on its face, it seems maybe not the best way to go about it. Just putting it on one person is a massive responsibility. And this is not the area of expertise for that one person. Um, and in fact. Well, yeah, especially especially when you've got, you know, a commanding officer may have the victim uh, and the accused in, in their command, right? Absolutely. That's it, the case. You know, what, what a hard place to be and, and, and try to adjudicate who's telling the truth and yeah, that's that's that was the um, uh, the impetus for Congress to change the rule was that uh, you know it makes it almost impossible 
for there to be a, um, a pure blind um, assessment of justice, right? And, and, for there, and for there not to be a backlash against the accuser or the accused. Yes, and we've seen in the past scandals about that service women who report retaliation or backlash from their leadership. But, you know, that's not to indict those leaders who are in a very difficult position of, first of all, a lot of these cases, it is you just have two reports on what happened and those are the two people. And so you're, you're balancing that yourself. I mean, normally, again, we have juries who hear the facts and decide but also you're balancing the interests of your command and you're trying, you know, so once you've made that decision, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Then you have the friends of the victim or the friends of the accused and the, and what their roles are within your command. And so to juggle all that is just, it's a massive responsibility. And again, they just, that's not what their training is in, you know, this, they're not, they didn't, to become a commanding officer, they didn't have to prove judgment of these kinds of cases through the ranks. This is a new responsibility bestowed on them. So uh, I think that it's a good idea to try. It seems like it would be uh, that it might prove successful. But also, I just think that when we're tackling a problem that has proved so difficult to solve for so many decades, we should just be open minded about anything that could help. Like maybe this won't solve the problem, but any new idea could be a good idea. So it's just, it's worth giving it a shot. Great points. Uh, we're running a little short on time. So last question to you, are any points we didn't touch on or things that you'd like to, you know, to bring up that, uh, you know, key points of your article that we just haven't had a chance to discuss yet? There's a lot more to it, I guess, but um, no, I think, I, I think I just want to, uh, drive home that this is not an indictment of the Marine Corps. I, um, I think it's bringing light to a problem and I'm, um, I'm not beating around the bush here, but the point is not to name call or cast blame. Really. I think the point is everyone who cares about the Marine Corps and the military and our missions here wants to see this problem fixed. And it just may take calling out it out repeatedly and very specifically until it's actually gone, right? Not addressing the problem is what allows it to survive. Um, I've, yeah, I've gotten some feedback from friends who might feel a little defensive of, of the Marine Corps and of their own character. And I'm not, this is not an attack on any individual, um, but I think this is a, a dark cloud on the military, on the Marine Corps, and it is embarrassing for all of us associated but we shouldn't feel personal shame. I think it's that we need to be working together uh, to eradicate this together. The, the assault is the dark cloud and talking about it and drawing attention to it. Uh, that is not the problem. That's what we need to be doing if we want to see this problem erased. Yeah, well said. Sunlight's always the best disinfectant, right? Yes. Uh, you you got you to gotta bring it up. You got to have the hard talk and then uh, you can make some progress. So, uh, great conversation. Uh, my guest today has been Navy Lieutenant Julie Rowland. She's a Naval Aviator and the third prize winner of the Naval Institute's 2022 Marine Corps Essay Contest. Her article is titled Reimagine Recruiting to Prevent Sexual Assault. It's in the November issue of Proceedings. Julie, congrats again on your prize essay and thanks for your time today and happy Veterans Day. Thank you so much. Okay, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you today by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage.
What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FAP Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. If you enjoyed the show, like us, subscribe to our channel, tell your friends, become a member of the Naval Institute at usni.org forward slash join. Happy Veterans Day. And until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.